Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sebak thani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling to Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The, tomb also, the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking from looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus back from Galilee, ministering to him among many who were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. What would it take? That's the question. I've been puzzling over all week after I read that scripture. What, what would it take? And, and I suppose I've been wondering it because I'm not a savior. I never will be a savior. I, I don't understand what it is to be a savior. But looking at those words from Jesus on the cross, I've looked at them and, and wondered, specifically these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, while I'm, I'm not a Savior, and I'll never be a Savior, I, I am a parent. And so I've been wondering, what would it take? What would it take for me to abandon my children? You can't take the words of Jesus lightly here. But you also cannot take the actions of God, the Father, lightly here. And I've heard excuses about these words. I've heard a lot of excuses. Jesus didn't mean it. In the moment, he, he felt abandoned. I've heard people say, God would never do that to his own son. You know that for sure? Really? There are times as a parent, there are times as parents when we're disappointed with our children's choices. There's times as parents when we may even distance ourselves from some of our kids' mistakes, but they are still our kids. But make no mistake, God turned his back on his son. Why? What, what drove him to that? The text that Rick read for us there, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. You'll find it on page 834. Thank you so much, Rick, for, for reading that. Of, of all the words that Jesus spoke while on the cross, I think 
these words haunt us the most. And I think it's because deep down, one of our biggest fears is the fear of abandonment. The fear of being forsaken. I remember when Megan was about three or four years old, back when we were at the Kemp Church, and one Sunday after church, we had a potluck. We had a potluck last Sunday. Is that amazing or what? We had an amazing time together. Camp potlucks are pretty amazing too. I know where all the good potlucks are. And we'd had a wonderful time, and, and after the kids had eaten, they had all gone out behind the church. There was a playground behind the church. And so they're on the swings, they're on the slides, they're having a good time. And it got time to leave, so I picked up all the stuff that we had brought. I loaded it up in the car, and my plan was to drive around to the other side and pick up my daughter, and then we were going to go home. So I got in the car, I backed out, I took off, and I hear this blood-curdling scream over the sound of the engine, over the, with the windows up, I hear this scream, and I know whose kid is screaming. And I look, and there's my little girl running full blast towards me. I pulled the car over, I jumped out, and I threw my arms around and said, what's wrong? She said, I thought you were leaving me. I held her, and I, I you know what that did to my heart for my little girl to even think, to even think for that moment that, that her daddy would leave her? I said, honey, I would never, I would never leave you. God did that. God the Father abandoned his son. He turned his back on his son. As a parent, I can't, I don't get it. I could never do that, but these words are real and they are here because they had to be here. Because for Jesus to do what Jesus had to do on the cross, God had to turn his back on him. He had to forsake his son. And it's in the loneliness of the cross that you and I have hope. You and I find a wonderful promise. Jesus spoke these words spoke them in, in anguish. He spoke them in pain. One of the reasons I think that he spoke these words, I think he spoke them to, to draw attention to his mission, to draw attention to, to what it was that he was doing. I think in some ways these, these words were a last-ditch effort. I think they were a Hail Mary. <laughs> Pardon the expression. I, I think that that was one last attempt to get people to understand. Hanging there on the cross, these words were one more chance for for him to say, don't you get it? Don't you understand who I am and what I am doing for you? See, these weren't just Jesus' words. It was a quote. It was a thousand-year-old quote. It was a quote that they all should have known, that they all did know, and yet in that moment they didn't understand. We were talking the other day about memorizing scriptures and what scriptures we had memorized how few scriptures we have memorized. We've mentioned that, you know, of course, John 3.16. A lot of people have John 3.16 memorized. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a, that's a good one. I hope you've got that memorized. I hope you've got that hidden in your heart. We also, I mentioned John, John 11.35. You want to know John 11.35? Jesus wept. 
That's a great one. I remember when you guys sent me to church camp when I was in seventh grade, they gave us stars for every scripture we memorized. I got one. John 11.35, Jesus wept. I don't even think it was a whole star. I think they tore my star in half, put it on my paper. You and I were blessed with, with Bibles on paper, Bibles on our tablets, Bibles on our phones. In their day, they were mostly illiterate, and they didn't have the blessing of the printed word. And so if they were going to hide the Scripture in their heart, they literally had to hide it in their heart. They had to memorize it. And, and a child... By the time a child had gone through the education system there in, in Israel, they would have memorized, memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. They also would have committed most of the Psalms to memory. And in worship, it was standard practice for the worship leader, the one bringing them to God, to stand before the crowd and begin by simply reciting the first verse of a psalm, the first line of the psalm. He would recite the first line, and then the congregation would join in and recite the rest of the psalm. That was standard practice every, Sunday, or every Saturday in worship at the temple and worship in the synagogues. And so Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's the first line of Psalm 22. And for those Jews who were there, they would have been able to continue the words of that psalm if they were really listening that day. They would have been able to continue, and they would have seen graphically displayed before them the truth, the prophecy of that psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. As they looked at the people at the foot of the cross, they would have been able to think of those words from Psalm 22, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they, they cast lots. Those were written hundreds of years before crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, had been invented. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Every one of them there, every one of them knew those words. None of them heard it that day. They had memorized them as children. They had had them drilled into their heads, not into their souls. Not in any way that God could speak to them. And as their Savior was hanging there on the cross, graphically displaying the clarity of a thousand-year-old promise, all they saw was confusion and condemnation. They simply 
simply wanted him to die. But Jesus cries out, trying to get their attention, trying to get them to see what he was doing for them. But they didn't get it. So hanging there on the cross, Jesus cries out because for the first time, for the first time in all eternity, God the Son was alone. He cried out the words in, in Aramaic. There were three common languages spoken by the people there. There was Aramaic, there was Hebrew, and there was Greek. And Aramaic was kind of the street language. Everybody knew, knew the, the language of Aramaic. Everybody spoke Aramaic. But Hebrew is the language that you would read scriptures in. And so I've always wondered, why didn't he cry out these words in Hebrew? Maybe if he had cried out in Hebrew, there wouldn't have been this confusion. Well, he's calling for Elijah. Let Elijah save him. No, no. They, if he had called out in Hebrew, they would have understood perfectly what he was doing. Maybe. But what strikes me is Aramaic. Aramaic was Jesus' mother tongue. It was literally the, the language that his mother first taught him, the, the language that she had learned from her mother. It was in Aramaic that Jesus learned to call God Father. It was in Aramaic that he cried for his mother, Ema. Mother in Aramaic, Ema, Ema. Thinking about when I was very young, I was at Woolworths over in Paris with my Ema, my mother. And I, I, for you younger kids, Woolworths—that's like Walmart, you know, much smaller. And there was a counter you could eat. And I'm, I'm in the back at Woolworths, and I'm looking at the toys. And I reach over to tap my mommy, my Ema, and I look up, and that wasn't my mommy. <laughs> and there's that brief second where you're like, she's, she's left me again, you know? <laughs> she's, she's abandoned me. Think about little Jesus in the market, being separated from his mommy. Ema, Ema, that's what he would have yelled out and she would have recognized his voice. Learning to walk when Jesus fell down and, and skinned his knee, he would have cried, Ema, Ema, and she would have come and, and picked him up. And so when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the language of his heart. It's the language of his mother. It's his, it's his family's language. It's his community's language. And yet, here on the cross, he has been cut off from all those things and, and so much more. For the first time in all eternity, God's Son stands alone without the presence of God the Father, without the comfort of God the Spirit. God the Son has been abandoned. He has been forsaken because within his being, he has taken on the sin of all mankind. And the sight of him is so wretched, it is so vile, that God the Father cannot stand to look at his Son. God the Spirit cannot stand to be there. And for the first time in all eternity, the Son is alone. The irony is that just a few hours earlier, when he was praying in the garden, he, he was talking to his disciples. In John chapter 16, verse, verse 32, Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home, and you, you 
will leave me alone, yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. The only comfort he had in the garden while he was sweating drops of blood, his comfort, his peace was in that God had not abandoned him. But not here on the cross. On the cross, the real and dreadful separation had taken place between the Father and Son because that was the only way that he could save us. We come every week to the table, right? We come to the table and we remember what happened at the cross. We, we take the bread and we remember those words, this is my body broken for you. You know, we, we take that bread and, and we take the cup and we remember the words, this is my blood shed for you. We remember body and blood. But we can't forget that his, our sin, our sin wasn't just in his body. Our sin wasn't just in his blood. Our sin was in his soul. Your children maybe disappoint you every now and then. You know, maybe they disappoint you. Maybe you hate the things your children do. But have you ever hated their soul? Would you ever hate the soul of your children? In that moment, in the cross, God had no choice in his justice and in his holiness. He had to forsake his son. But I don't want you to miss this. I want you to miss in, the, in these words where, where it really hits you and me is that Jesus said these words so that you and I would never have to say Jesus said these words so that we would never have to say There are some tremendous promises in Scripture. They are promises that we have because of Jesus, because He willingly took on our sins, because He took them into his soul because he willingly allowed the stench of our sin to permeate him, to fill him so full of evil that God the Father left him for dead. And in the horror of that moment, you and I have incredible promises. Paul summed it up this way in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I love this verse. Paul says, for our sake, for our sake, he, God, made him who had, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When he took on our sin, he gave us his righteousness. He replaced that stench of our sin with the scent of holiness, with the very presence of God. Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 says, God has said to you and me, God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my help. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We can say that because Jesus gave up his right to say those words. He took on our sin. Immediately before this passage in Matthew 27, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are, are mocking Jesus. And if you look at verse 42, the chief priest says, he saved others. He can't save himself. 
They spoke those words as, as an insult. But that was the literal truth. That was the literal truth. He couldn't save himself and save others simultaneously. So he chose to sacrifice himself. He chose to sacrifice his relationship with God the Father, with God the Spirit, in order to save us. And he cried out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never know that kind of loneliness. So that you would never know that kind of abandonment. So that you would never have to know what it means to be abandoned, to be forsaken. So that you would never experience what it is to have God turn his back on you. So that you could say with confidence, God has told me never will I leave. Never will I forsake you. The Lord is my helper. Whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? wonder how many people really know that. I wonder how many people really, really know that. If I had to guess, I would say not many. I can tell you, well, I can't, but I could tell you about conversations I've had with people and they tell me about the horrible things they've done and the mistakes that they've made. And I hear stories about how friends have abandoned them. Sometimes I hear stories about how family is abandoned. Sometimes they tell me how their church is abandoned in those moments of need. And, and all that communicates to that person, all that communicates to them is, well, if those people don't want me, then God doesn't want me. If my friends, if my family, if my church, if they don't want me, then God, God doesn't want me. No wonder what we could do to communicate the truth to them, to communicate the truth about who they are, to communicate the truth about what Jesus has done for them by taking their sin into his very soul, by taking that guilt, by taking the shame, by taking the penalty of hell, so that they could know a Savior who gave up everything for them. So they could know a God, they could know a Father who will never abandon them, who will never forsake them, so that they could know His amazing grace. And let's be honest, maybe it's not somebody else. Maybe it's you. Maybe you've known that kind of loneliness. Not just loneliness, but maybe you've known that kind of abandonment. Maybe friends and family, maybe people that you've counted on, maybe even people who promised you that they would never leave. Maybe they have. Maybe they're gone. Maybe you know that kind of loneliness. I think Jesus wants you to know two things. Number one, he's been there. He's known that kind of loneliness. Deep, painful. In the hour of his greatest need, he knew that. The other thing he would want you to know is because of that, you can be certain, you will never be abandoned by him. You will never be left by your heavenly Father. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's his promise. That's what he gave us. That's what we remember at the table.
why we come together here. That's why you don't have your own little table. <laughs> That's why we share this. Because it's not just about what we come and receive. It's not just about a cracker and some juice. It's about what you bring to this table. You bring the very presence of God. You bring the assurance to that other person. You're not going to be left alone. Whatever you're going through, I'm there with you. And God's there with you. There might be times when it takes more than a cracker and a piece of or a little cup to remind someone of that. It might take going and sitting with them. It might take going and visiting with them and spending time putting in the effort to say, we're here, to get, we're here together. We're doing this together. I love that promise, and I, I love that song. We're going to sing it in just a little bit. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become his righteousness. That's what we're going to sing as we approach the table. We're going to pray first. And I'm going to ask the guys to come in just a little bit. Let's pray. Father, from Jesus' perspective, we hear, oh God, we hear the anguish. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a parent, there's, there are few things that provide me more joy than watching my kids. <laughs> Lord, I, I watch them, I smile, I see their accomplishments, I see what they overcome. It just fills me with joy. I'm sure people are sick of it, but I can't stop taking pictures of them. I think that as a father, you, in that hour, had to look away. Not just that he was abandoned, but as a father, you could not force yourself to look at him. You love us in some amazing ways. We can't even begin to understand. We come to the table as we come to celebrate this together, as we come to remember together. Lord, it's not just that we seek your face. We want everyone here to see you. We want them to experience you. So I pray we can bring something of your presence together today to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.